0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to day 28 of the 7am novelist March March writing challenge. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Today, I'm in a room of historical novelists. so I'm very, very excited. We have two historical novelists with us, Crystal King and Laura Prescott, and they're going to talk to us about how they do research. Good morning, you two. Good morning, Michelle. And good morning,
1: everybody. Thank he you so much all
0: for the place. I know we've got everybody. Thank you so much for being on the show. Crystal King is the best-selling author of The Chef's Secret and Feast of Sorrow, the latter of which was long-listed for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize and was a must-read for the Massachusetts Book Awards. She is an author, culinary enthusiast, And she's a great cook because I've eaten her food too. And a marketing expert. Her writing is fueled by love of history and a passion for food, language, and the culture of Italy. She has taught classes in writing, creativity, and social media at several universities, including Harvard Extension School, Boston University, and UMass Boston, as well as at Grub Street. Laura Prescott's debut novel, The Secrets We Kept, was an instant New York Times bestseller, a Hello Sunshine Reese Witherspoon book club pick, an Edgar Award nominee for Best First Fiction, a Barnes & Noble Discover pick, and a winner of 2019's Writer League of Texas Book Award in Fiction. So Laura's book did kind of okay, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Right. Um. It has been translated into 30 languages and is being adapted for television by The Ink Factory and Mark Platt Productions. Lara lives in Costa, New Hampshire with her family. All right. I love having these two with us. I love both of these novelists. We are going to start with our research how to's with Crystal King. Crystal, help us out. Where do we where do we begin?
2: Oh, it depends on what you want to do. Um, the era that you choose, the, the places that you choose and how familiar you are dictates a lot of what you'll end up doing. Right. Um, if you've decided on, um, if you're writing historical fiction and you're going back in time and uh, you're probably going to do a lot more research than say, if you set something in 1980 and you, like me, happen to have been alive in the 80s, um, you're you you're going to end up doing different kinds of research. Um, I, so for me, when I start, um, I begin by reading as much as I absolutely can. I take at least a couple of months where I immerse myself in as much um, information as I can about those um, eras. And so that includes a whole bunch of different possibilities. Primarily, um, I look for source material. So when I was writing my book about ancient Rome, I was really lucky that there are writings from people that were 2000 years ago that still survive. So I was reading Cato's um, Treaties on Agriculture, which sounds funny, but it's fascinating. And I was reading, um, you know, uh, different accounts from people's mouths, you know, what they had written and left behind. Then I, of course, you always turn to the the, the books that um, people have written about those eras. So I read as much as I can about all of those place about those places, and that I'm that I'm working on, and then I start to to, to, to go into like smaller niche areas and and down a different different rabbit holes based upon um, certain things that I feel like I have gaps in my understanding. So you do this before
0: even putting words on the page
2: sometimes I'm putting words on a page, but it's, um, a lot of like ideas and notes. Um, uh, I've written, I'm working on my seventh novel, actually. The publishing industry is a weird one right now. I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I, some of the, the novels I've written, I've already, um, I had a sense of the story beforehand. So I'm learning more about like how to fill in all the gaps Whereas other, like when I was writing um, Feast of Sorrow, my first novel, I just didn't understand. I didn't know enough about ancient Rome at all. So, and that era is so particular and people are really obsessed with ancient Rome. I mean, there are societies trying to bring back the religion and the culture and the way that, you know, the politics and things like that. And I felt like I, I had to get it right. I really needed to get it right. So I wanted to immerse myself in as much of it as I could. Now I, I probably uh, would do that a little bit less, but I think it depends on your familiarity with the with what you're writing. Honestly, did that
0: change the story you wanted to tell as you started to do the research? Oh, definitely,
2: yeah. very, very definitely. And I was, and even after I had written the book, and I went to Rome for the first time. Now I've been many times, but for the very first time, things I learned on that trip changed what I had written. And I ended up revising um, big chunks of the book um, based upon new research I had learned. And then the kicker is always when you find out something super cool that you're like, dang it, I could have included that, but I didn't learn about it until the book was published. You know, that always happens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Laura, how about you? How do you start off? So I think it's different for my two different books. For my first book, I had this in with the subject matter it's about the cold war and it's about dr jivago and how books were used as weapons by the cia and my name is laura so i was named after the main character of dr jivago and i had read the book so many times over the years um but it really started with a spark which was a washington post article that had unleashed all of these cia memos and reports about the mission so my research for that book began with that, during that article came out in 2014. And immediately I went to the CIA's website and they had about a hundred documents that you could download and read these PDFs. And that was my initial entry into the research. And, and, you know, I also, for that book, spent about a year reading everything I could about it, reading everything I could about the early days of the CIA, about women who worked in the early days of the CIA, about Boris Pasternak, Dr. Chivago. You know, it was this so almost too much material to consume. So I did that before I even put pen to paper, I did so much research. And then I continued the research, which, which, you know, I can never stop reading little tidbits and. Picking up a book about 1950s fashion and suddenly there's a scene from that or, you know, getting I, I brought I picked up a couple of my little things that I use like I would use eBay a lot to get these little historical artifacts. And even a brochure like this, this is from the World's Fair in Brussels, and this is the Soviet, I don't know if you could see it, the Soviet Union pavilion. And even just this brochure that I would procure over the years of writing led to a scene and led to a lot of description that you just couldn't find otherwise. So I agree, these, these primary sources and historical artifacts really helped inspire me along the way and keep me going which I think is something fun about historical fiction is you can have the story, the history, and the series of events of that history, but your mind, that's not the plot of your novel. Your mind starts thinking about these characters, whether they're fictional or not and, and what they would be seeing, what they would be saying. And that just keeps being inspired. The more research you do. Um, yeah. I, I, And it's so, it's so fun in a way. I think that for the second book, I was like, I'm not sure if I'll do historical fiction again. Maybe I'll do something else. And now I find myself writing about the the 17th century. (laughs) I went older. (laughs) I went older. And I will say another inspiration for for historical fiction with this new book is I moved from Texas where I had gone to grad school and was living in Austin, Texas for a long time. I moved to New England and really the place is a a huge source of inspiration. And I live in a house built in 1800, so far after my, my novel takes place, but you know, just walking around the town and and talking to people um, who point you in the direction of experts has been so useful for me. I think especially during this, you know, the 17th century and the period I'm writing about a lot of, in in pre-colonial America, a lot of these documents weren't preserved. And so it's a different experience for me researching this book than it was for 1950s, which I just had a plethora of experts and plethora of primary sources and so much, so much information to choose from. This is definitely, I have to seek out um, people a lot yeah. more than I did with the first book. And um, like, for instance, I recently joined uh, Athenaeum at in Portsmouth. If anyone comes to Portsmouth, they have to come. It's one of, um, I think, 14 surviving private libraries in the United States. There's another one in Boston, big yeah. one, um but it's a place where i can get books like this which don't even have a title um and it's read really about
0: like a blank brown uh, book <laughs> yes <laughs> so it's just a...
1: describe it yeah so this book is puritan psalms and and songs and just having this music and and, and visualizing what people were we're, we're doing in their daily lives is so helpful and I never would have been I mean this isn't listed on any uh, I'm, I'm sure there's in the Library of Congress which you have to go back to the the main the main source for a lot Without of a title you would not even know what to look for Yeah, you did. And I didn't. I was just wandering the aisles of this absolutely gorgeous place that I had to apply to become a member and be interviewed by a man whose title's The Keeper. And and just wandering (laughs) and looking around and you find these gems that really lead you down another path and inspire you. So that is really fun, especially in the beginning, you know, working on the novel. There is a point I will say, and everyone probably knows this point where you're procrastinating with your research (laughs) and you're just like, I could be researching forever and you're never gonna get a word down. So I think there's a time where you get that word down. And then, you know, especially after the first draft, then you can go back and say, I need to get this accurate. I need to get this perfect either by additional research, by visiting those places or by experts, or sometimes, you know, for my, this book, um, I'm gonna have to get someone and and probably pay someone to to do a whole overview of the novel to make sure it's as historically accurate as possible, just because it's a, such a different era.
0: Yeah. So first off, the fact that there's someone whose title is the keeper. Oh. <laughs> I think that person needs a novel based on him. And then secondly, um, it is a full-time job. I mean, someone in the chat says, sounds like a full-time job. I mean, doing doing this sort of uh, world building basically. So historical novelists, but other, other sorts of writers, you know, people are talking in the chat. My book takes place in the 1980s. My book takes place in the 1990s. Like even that sort of thing can require quite a lot of research. So hopefully you like learning about time periods and I generally say that historical novelists should be paid double for their books because <laughs> uh, that's right, But no one's listening to me on that. Okay, so Crystal, you've done all this research. How do you organize your notes?
2: Well, I'm going to address a question that was in the chat real quick. Um, it was about com- marketing a coming of age story in 1971. Sadly, I have to admit that it, it would be historical fiction. And that means I'm historical fiction because I was born in 71, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would say the kind of lately what I'm seeing from publishers and editors, it's like 80s and before. Anytime, actually, kind of before cell phones, really. Right, so, right. Wow. Wow. Um, so how I organize my research? So I have a couple different methods. Um, um, this is Merlin, by the way, for those of you who might be wondering. Um, and I use um, I use Evernote. I use Scrivener to write. Um, and I use this tool called My Mind, um, and then I also use um, a tool called Scapple. Um, and Scapple is um, a basically a mind mapping kind of tool that is uh, made by the folks at Scribner um, Literature and Latte. And um, I use that to help me organize the ideas that come out of a lot of the research. But uh, Evernote is a great online tool where I can snip um, articles and save those really easily into notebooks. And um, I can also use it to write and create notes there. Um, I move um, certain things into Evernote, I mean, into Scrivener. I don't keep all my stuff in Scrivener, um, but I, especially images of things that I, I really want to make sure that I'm able to see and imagine quickly. Um, images of people, for example, um, certain things like, for example, when I'm um, the one of the book works um, I'm working on now has a lot of Cockney slang in it. Um, so I have a lot of um, like lists of slang. Or when I was working on my novels in the Renaissance, I have these lists of like slang words from the 1500s um, that I would have in there. Um, and so it's just things that I'd need like on the fly really quick. And I don't I just, I just want them readily available. Um, and then I also use another tool called my mind and my mind is, um, is it's really image-based, um, and it's similar to Evernote in the sense that you can use a bookmarklet on your browser and just clip Mm -hmm. things, um, and save things. But it's, for me, it's a very visual tool, So there's a book that is I have on submission right now that is set in 1949. um, And it's a gothic novel in Italy. It's a retelling of Hades and Persephone. And um, it also has Salvador Dali in it. And so Mm -hmm. I have Mm -hmm. used my mind for all these images of the the garden where this book takes place, because it's a real place. And then all these wild pictures of Salvador Dali, because he was an interesting dude. And, um, I'm able to, uh, find, um, be So then I can just go there really quick and see all of the images from the very easily, um, and get a real sense. And it's, 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 so it's, for me, it's a real great visual tool. Um, so Evernote and my mind, um, are probably the main things that I use to hold my research.
0: And I do in Scrivener. I mean, there is a, there's a tag for research and you can put quite a lot of research in there but yeah. some of these might just be be better um to uh organize uh, so laura how do you organize your research
1: so i do use scrivener for these, yeah. these bits um i am writing this stuff down because i'm going to look into what is yeah. sc- scapel and mind map because i think that would be extremely helpful to use I told myself I'd be so much more organized with this novel, and I think if you look at my office, this isn't actually my office downstairs, it just looks like Disaster Zone with (laughs) books and tabs and random notebooks. I think I I function, I'm like the only one that can understand and and wind my way through all the notes I've taken and different notebooks and, and what they mean. Um, so I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about that, but I do I think once it makes it into the scrivener of like this is things I'm actually using I will note I'll note the source of where it came from um, and when I found it and for this book I think almost everything is offline except for a few um, universities that have made documents that are accessible. so most of this, is is things that I'm finding in books, including pictures and and things like that. Um, yeah, but I I could be a lot more organized.
0: <laughs> there is also, and I haven't used it yet, so maybe I shouldn't talk about it. But there's a there's a um, application called Aeon Timeline. A uh, yeah, Eon Timeline. A E O I N Timeline. Um, that I think is it could be particularly helpful because timelines are really difficult to keep track and, and constantly changing you know oh i need this character to be born mm-hmm. a year earlier but that then changes everything i've found that i'm trying to have 70-year-old women give birth to babies that's a problem <laughs> uh, you know there's <laughs> you know that might not happen most likely not so um so just adjusting timelines and 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 so so that i'm i'm curious to to really look at um as well um do you find that how do you get out from under the research, Crystal? Like, how do you... Yeah, when Laura was
2: talking, I was thinking about, like, there's a point where you you could just research forever and mm-hmm. you could world build, because that's what we're doing is we're world building, yes. really. Um, a lot of the tools that historical novelists use are the same as in building fantasy worlds, yes. um, in the sense, that, except we're dealing with historical facts, but you still have to build and create and imagine a world that you're not familiar with. Um, and for me, I, am trying, I try to put a cap on like one to two months at best beforehand. Um, and, and I am often writing a lot of notes or ideas, and sometimes I have uh, characters and places that I want them to go. And then I might be filling in timelines. Um, and I actually use, I use like, um, Google docs, Excel. Um, Mm -hmm. so I found over I spend so much on Aon timeline that I was spending so much time managing the software that I was just like, oh, Excel's just easier. So I that's what I do for my timelines. I have crazy timelines mm-hmm. in Excel. Mm-hmm. But um there's a point where I realize I've just got to um I've got to start putting XX, I don't know, look this up later. Yeah. So I have all of these notes in in Scrivener saying. Um, look this up, look this up, look this up. And then I, there's a note section in Scrivener, which is really great. So I can just put in, you know, I look this up, look this up. And then as I'm writing, I realize I've learned something new or I need to go back, you know, and that changes what I've written in the past. And so instead of going in and really redoing all of it at that moment, because then that's another like time suck. Um, yeah. I'll go in and I'll put in the notes section on, the, on Scrivener, um, make sure you get this, make sure you check this, make sure you do that. And, and I find that at least keeps me moving forward. Um, yeah. Having forward momentum is, I think, the hardest thing for any novelist and yeah. um the it's really easy to stop and and edit or really easy to like go and do more research or what color you know did they have this bird in spring and this you know or was this flower available or um um for me I'm looking up food I write about a lot of food and so I have to look up were lemons available in ancient Rome no mm third century, you know? So like, um, yeah, it, it you have to kind of stop yourself and say, look this up later.
0: And that, so that is really important. I, I actually recommend that for anyone as you're revising or um, even, even revising a regular novel but also working in historical fiction that you keep a notepad to the side of things that, okay, this is an issue. This is something I need to look up. This is something I want to address. But keep that notebook there. Write it down, and then go back to your main focus for the day. Because otherwise, you're just going to be chasing those tails all day. Um, and so that is that is really really important. And you might also, with that notebook, when you look back at it, think, "Oh, actually, that's not a problem. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not even going to. I'm not going to do that." Um, Laura, how
1: do you how do you get out from under the research? So yeah, I think it's incredibly important during when I'm writing my first draft. I actually just write the note like I I will know that I need to look something up, but I'll put flower TK as a symbol. You're going to be researching what flower would be growing at that point in time at this particular location or something like that or boat or um, I can't quite remember something that had run in the research because I don't have the research sitting out before me as I'm writing. I block my Internet and this is a time that I don't want to be inhibited with my idea by thinking, okay, well, this, this, I need to look this up. I need to stop writing and pause. Like that is really essential for me to just keep going. And then you can, you know, Scribner, then you, I have the notes section. You can write more in depth of what you need to look at, but I'm not even doing that um, until after my first draft. I have all the notes of what I need to do. And then I'm I'm just plowing through to the end. That's where I'm at now in my writing process that I want to get this down on paper. And these little details cannot bog you down. Like you need to have the greater sense of everything that's going on. But if you're spending hours looking up the type of, you know, flower that <laughs> is here, it's just going to really ruin the creativity for me. So yeah. I do a lot of that to come like TK 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 all through my drafts or need to look up this and I highlight it. So my drafts
2: look messy, but I'm not the drafts look
1: that. messy. Oh my God.
2: Messy. <laughs> yeah. I love that you turn off your internet. I need to be better about that.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's really important because again, and also put your notes and everything to the side mm-hmm. and just work because otherwise you're feeding off those notes that. Some of that historical textbooky language can get into the book when you really need to be writing scenes or mm-hmm. writing dialogue that's really alive in the moment. So you're working off of kind of the best of the research that's living in your head um, and, and the and the world and the sounds and the smells that's living in your head instead of living off of actual descriptions or or actual lines. Um, I think freeing yourself in that way is really, really important. Um Oh, there's an impossible question in the chat. How do you work on scent?
2: I could probably take that because I write okay. about food a lot. So um, your food. So scent and taste um, are often real commingled. Um, so uh, like you can probably think of foods or you can think of smells that smell like something tastes. Um, and so. Um, I think that's one really great way is to to think about how you taste things. So yeah, you can, you can compare those two things on a regular basis. Um you can you you can describe scent as memory as well. Um scent is a powerful nostalgia um uh, way to like it and it also it's a great way to reveal things about your character. The scent reminded them of, you know, XX thing. Um you can um uh, you can really, one of the things that I do since I'm writing about food a lot is I usually try to keep like certain um, symbols or, or foods that, that are symbolic in some way. And so, um, or that, that is important to a character. So I will sometimes uh, like hint back at smells that are related to that or um, so you can use it also as a marker along the way sometimes that scents are super important to certain people um, but yeah it's is tricky it's it's definitely a really hard one um, so I find that it's easier to describe it in relation to someone's experience versus yeah. how it actually is
0: yeah because that's important anyway because it's characterizing um, and so and both of my my first two books at least took place on farms. And I realized that I could do because I didn't know I was like, well, what does milk straight from a cow actually taste like I'd actually never taste and what does it smell like? Um, and, and I found that I could do a lot of research of current organic farmers and the things that they talked about with their with their process and with their farming in order to understand the way things had done so there might be Mm -hmm. there are societies and groups of people that are actually continuing some of these ways of life or have gone back to these ways of life that you might be able to find Um, okay Laura, particular problems that you've run into like and how you might have fixed it I have found in my past that when I hit a research problem or um, a, a wall that I'm like, oh my God, I guess I can't do this or oh my God, I guess this doesn't work I find eventually that it's a gift to me mm. um, and that it grants me something that I never would have thought of um, and that eventually becomes exciting. So I have to I have that kind of sense of belief that every wall is going to give me something, more more interesting and more exciting. Um, have you had any experiences
1: like that? Yeah, I think with during my first book, I had a lot of imposter syndrome going on. And so much of the time I, I thought, I need to reach out to this expert, this person that knows everything about this. And I was very intimidated to do so, thinking they wouldn't give me the time of day. I'm not a real writer. I'm just the students. Why would they talk to me? And, and that definitely led to a block. And I think I just had to overcome that by thinking the worst they can say is no. But you know what? No one said no. No one said no. They didn't care if you were a huge author or just beginning out. They they really want to talk to you about these niche, <laughs> niche things that they're experts on. Um, so I think now I'm so much more empowered to, to sit down, try to sit down with people and meet them and talk to them about that. But I think my own personality was a hindrance to the research in the first novel, just because I thought, you know, I don't want to bother these people, right. but so many times they, they really want to talk about it. Um, and so that was helpful just to overcome and, and yeah, like Michelle, every block, you know, you kind of, when you dig in, you, you might find something new that leads you down a new path or, you know, unleases this new, Um, Sense of what's happening or what this novel's really about, because you can start off with one one idea, and I'll tell you what this with every novel it it definitely changed to. Actually, I'm really interested in this. You know, with the first novel, I actually was really interested in the women more than the CIA men and the um, Boris Pasternak himself. And with this novel, it's it's kind of going back where I'm actually this is what I'm really interested in, and the research helped me with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Crystal, have you had moments where you might've hit a wall and then found your way around it or, or discovered something new or, or did you hit walls that you weren't able to deal with? And you're like, gosh, I guess I have to take a really big detour here.
2: Um, no, I can usually manage my way around the walls. Um, the scalpel thing actually helps a lot because it's, it's a mind mapping tool allows you to like branch ideas off. And I'm a big proponent of that. Um, but I find that sometimes just going back into doing more research, um, the book I'm working on now is actually a contemporary fantasy, um, but it has ancient Greek gods in it. And I'm playing with the mythology of these Greek gods quite a lot. And, um, but I want to understand certain commonalities and threads that these gods might have with another. And sometimes, and so I have had a, a, a moment where I'm really, um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how a certain God relates to another God. I've been desperately trying to find the thread between them. And I realized they don't have the thread that I, I need them to have unless I completely make it up. And there are some things I'm trying to stay true to in, in the, the rules I've developed for this book. And so I'm realizing I've got to add another um another of ancient Greek God. And I wasn't planning on adding an extra character, but in order to solve the plot problem that I have, this other um this other um, ancient god would make more sense. So um, and mythology is a fun thing to um to research uh because it's not really real, but yet it's grounded in a lot of ancient texts and ancient beliefs and Um, I have a a Greek friend who's like, these are my ancestors. And I didn't know what she meant until I ran across. um, And you may have discovered this in your travels in Cyprus, um, Michelle, but um, how in in Greek culture, many people were brought up to believe that the gods were their ancestors. And so that's interest. That is interesting. Um, So that can, that's a nugget that I want to use at some point, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: yeah absolutely um and so we have someone um in the chat who's asking about it sounds like once you research first before writing everything might be preemptive to changing so much later i think you're still going to wind up changing things later you're going to be making discoveries as you go i also always go back to um edward p jones whose novel the known world um he said that he had a he had a um, a semester off a semester sabbatical from his work, and he decided that he could se- spend that sabbatical either researching or writing. And I think think his 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 book took place in the eighteen hundreds um, U.S. And he decided, you know what. I'm gonna write, and I'm just gonna write into this and I'm gonna write the characters. I think my imagination knows enough about this time period. and um, and he I think he did some research on the other end to fix some things, but mostly he just wrote. Um, So you can look up interviews with Edward P. Jones about the known world um, if if you're just like, oh, I just I just want to get the writing done. And people do do that. So people have different processes that I think um, can be useful to you um, to and explore different processes because there's not just one way of doing it.
2: All right. um, Along those lines, um, I had never been to Rome or Italy when I wrote my first novel. And so when I went for the first time, the book had been finished. And so I ended up going back and changing a whole bunch of things, but I wrote the entire thing without ever having been there, so.
0: And Law, have you had that experience of just having to write without without the research?
1: Absolutely, I think this new book, I am definitely writing, 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 um, and more in the Edward P. Jones thing, yeah. mean, because I am, I something that I wanna improve on with my next book is just getting really deep into the character psyche. And so I am focusing on that and the characters themselves, um, and trying not to be bogged down with research um, as much this time. So it's trying something different. I don't know how it's going to go, but I know I have a lot of research on the tail end, especially after the first draft. I think, I think for me mentally, having that you know big huge document um, is less intimidating to keep going in and then and fixing things than a blank document
0: yeah yeah so it's 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 what is going to let you move forward what is going to let you put your next foot forward um and following that process all right we're going to have to go everyone you can find our full march writing challenge schedule on our substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com subscribe there for updates you can also find the podcast version of these webinars on your favorite podcast platforms and if you like what we're doing please follow rate and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners so ladies are you going to be able to get any writing done today
2: I hope so that's what I'm doing
1: immediately after this yeah (laughs) after I drop off my son at preschool then I, I go to write
0: go to write okay everyone it is time to write thank you for joining us